0: So, I mean, I guess that this is our, like, Christmas special.
1: What's up, my dudes? We've been gone for a long time, and I'm not... I don't know if I'm sorry about it. It's been the life.
0: Well, I mean, you need to scoot closer, for one, because I'm, I'm still recording it. from my phone, because, honestly, it works okay.
1: It works just fine.
0: Fine enough. Um, so, for our Christmas edition, we are going to do three
1: apiece. piece. Yee. Who's going first? Um, I don't know. Do you rock,
0: paper, scissors for it?
1: Yeah. ASMR. Go. Hot. Okay, you go first. I'm nasty, sorry. Yes, you are. <laughs> I've never known you not to be. <laughs> so, my first serial killer is Graham Young, also known as the teacup poisoner. Really hard name to say. I don't know. why. teacup killer would have been just fine. Um, but he was... Um, he was born in Needston, England. Um, his mother had died a few months after his birth. He was sent to live with his aunt and uncle because his father didn't want him. Um, and his sister was sent to live with their grandparents. Um, at an early age, he was really interested in, like, poisons and chemicals. And he liked testing it out on, like, rats and cats and... <laughs> Um, all of that. And once he was, I want to say, once he was, like, 13, 14, um, in 1961, he started testing them on his family, like, his aunts and his uncles and his cousins. Um, he made them, like, violently ill. He would write down the dose and, like, what it did to the person. And I don't know how he got all of these, like, poisons that obviously, like, couldn't be found in the home. But he managed to do it and he made like some of his friends ill. But he only killed three people in this entire time, basically. So when he was younger, um, I want to say November later that year, after moving back with his aunt or back with his mom, uh, he moved back with his dad and his stepmom at that point. <laughs> God. He moved back in with somebody. He moved back, okay? Um, and he had an older sister, and at this point now he had a younger half-sister. And he would make tea for all of his family. And before his youngest sister was going to go to a, go on a train, go do her daily things, he was like, here, here's a cup of tea. And she took a drink of it, and it was so sour, she, like, took a drink and then was like, and, like, threw it out the side of the train, basically. And, with, and he's like, what the fuck, my tea! Yeah. Um, and he... Basically, it was like, okay, my bad, sorry, it was bad tea. And not even being, like, an hour on the train, she began to hallucinate. And she was so weak, she couldn't get off the train. From a, a sip? Yeah. Like, a single drink of the... Oh. Oh, yeah. imagine if men- she drank the
0: entire thing. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, and he... Like, people had to, like, take her off the train, like, to a hospital. Like, she couldn't move. And... So she was paralyzed or like no, she was she weak, weak enough that weak she couldn't, enough she okay. couldn't move. Um. And they found a tropa belladonna or deadly nightshade in her like system. And her sister's like, "Well, my brother gave me a cup of tea." And he's like, "False. I did nothing. You mix shampoo in these cups and I still fed you with them. Like it's all your fault." And they're like, "Whatever. I don't want to deal with it. Whatever." Um so Easter Saturday on uh, in 1962, um, the stepmom had died from poisoning. And, like, the father got extremely ill. And everybody's like, okay, what the fuck is happening in this family? Because everybody keeps getting sick as shit for no reason. And so the teacher, um, his chemistry teacher, and his aunt were like, I'm suspicious of this little kid who's always had an interest in poison. And the teacher found in his desk, like, a diary with dosages, what it was and what it did to the person, him deciding if people would live or die, and then poisons in his desk, you know, just maybe if his... Why would you keep these things here? Right? So... How old is he at this point? At that point, I want to say he's, like, 17. Oh my god. So, he was sent to Broadmoor Insane Asylum in 1962, you know, after poisoning several people in his family several times. (laughs) <laughs> several different times. So when he was released in 1971, he poisoned seven more people, two of whom who had died. So he really only killed about five people. So he killed his stepmom while he was in the insane asylum. So they were like, "Oh, he we're going to keep him away from everything." He was in the library reading about more poison. And then he would, like, with his medicines, he would, like, mix them with things and create poisons and try them out on, like, inmates and staff. So people would randomly get sick, and he's like, I don't know, man. I'm just an inmate. I didn't do nothing. So he killed one inmate, and then after he got out... Yes. After he <laughs> cut <caught> out... <laughs> sorry. He killed two more people. One who is not known, but he went to work, and nobody looked at, like, his criminal history. Nobody looked at his, like track record when he started working um, at a factory and he was serving tea to people. And like, there was such a big outbreak of like a quote unquote virus that like it, they named it like the, oh God, it's such a hard name to pronounce, like Bodag virus or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was really him just poisoning his coworkers. And then he had Go killed. Him. Yeah. And then he had killed one of them. And when the next person came to, like, take that person's spot, he tried to do the same thing, and that guy was like, fuck this, I'm out. Y'all are poisoning and people yell are diseased, I'm out of here. <laughs> so that's kind of how he, like, really was found out. So he was arrested, um, May of 1962, and he confessed. He's like, yep, I did it. Fight me. Um, and then he had several years of, like, psychiatric evaluation and stuff like that. And they found out he is on the autism spectrum but yeah so he basically was just like I'm gonna poison people and I'm gonna decide if you live or die because you know what you guys accept tea like it's a handout
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness that's pretty good
1: right he, he's one of my favorites because he's just super interesting
0: so the one that I'm doing isn't actually a murder story Because it's known for a fact that people couldn't have done this.
1: Oh, oh. Y'all, if y'all are super religious, Mm -hmm. stay and watch anyway. Why not? Religious? I don't know. Some people are like, well, demons and ghosts don't exist because my God wouldn't let me do that or Oh, well, I don't know that it's from
0: that. So it's the story of the Datelov Pass. So on January 31st, 1959, Datelov and his team of nine experienced Ski hikers from the Ural Polytechnical Institute went on a journey to reach the peak of O'Torton, a mountain in the northern Urals. One of the men on the trip became ill and turned back, and he would be the only one who set out on the trip that lived. Oh. Don't read my notes over my shoulder.
1: I actually wasn't. I was reading along with what you were saying. Okay. Okay. Well, I have...
0: (laughs) Don't do that either. I I have mistakes written in here. Um,
1: I know all of your mistakes. As they were
0: hiking, they were hit with a snowstorm. And uh, with decreasing visibility, they accidentally went west and landed on the slope of a nearby mountain known as Kolat I can't say this last part. Siakul, meaning dead mountain. So for some unknown reason, they make camp on the side of the mountain. Uh, So there's there's a lot of speculation over this. So I know a lot more than I wrote down. Um, There's a lot of speculation over... Why they made camp here because it was open to the elements, and they were experienced hikers and skiers, and they just like camped on the side of a slope, which is a bad idea in the open, yeah. so they kind of so before like what continues, people that were researching this kind of think something happened a little bit to them before what I'm about to tell you
1: although I would I just have to put my input that I think that. It's incredibly stupid for people to be like, I can't see. Keep going. Well, they had to
0: try and get out of the storm or they would die. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I'm just like, you know, maybe find the closest, like, thing to shelter, place to be. But, like, (laughs) maybe backtrack.
0: So when they didn't arrive at the expected time to a small town, a search team was dispatched to find them. So they actually, once they were supposed to get to this town, they were supposed to send a note back to some like family members and that kind of people being like we we made it we did it so actually they waited for like a week after they were supposed to receive the note before saying anything because they could have gotten held up Um, or the note could have
1: gotten you know whooshed away yeah yeah
0: so they were kind of like waiting and then when like one and two weeks passed they were like okay well they haven't like they haven't done a thing yeah so we need to go search for them so they did the first thing that the team found was the tent that the Nine had shared. It was a tent made of a really tough canvas, and the sides were ripped open from the inside. Oh. Uh, the, there were, uh, like, footprints all around that were leading away and none leading to. Um, so the tent was still full of the party's rations, warm clothing, and other essentials. All the bodies were about a mile from the tent. Two were discovered beside the remains of a campfire, and their hands were severely burned. The other three were discovered in intervals of about 100 feet, apparently attempting to get back to their tent. All five were in various states of undress. Some were barefoot, and some were wearing only socks. Jesus
1: Christ
0: one of the men, Rustem Slobodin, had a small fracture in his skull that was deemed, but was deemed to have died from exposure and not injury. The remaining four hikers were found three months later, after the snow had melted. Because, the, like, a storm had put layers over their body. Yeah.
1: That's kind of crazy that, like, for one, they're all, like, undressed or almost undressed, as well as, like, Their tent is ripped from the inside. All of their warm things and food and stuff is there. And then the ones who were, like, further away created a fire, burned themselves, and died. Well, so they also had some injuries.
0: So they thought that they had attempted to climb the tree that they were under to get branches and stuff. And in their... Or to hide from something that had come by. And in their panic had, like, really injured their hands And then when they got down, had later burned their hands with the fire.
1: Oh, to seal Mm -hmm. it off? I don't know. Well, because I'm assuming it would be to seal it off, but...
0: Um, So these bodies that were under the snow confused people even more. They were wearing clothes, but the clothes belonged to the ones left at the campfire. So they had gone and scavenged the bodies to stay warm in minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So that means a lot of them still left when they were wearing, like, nothing. Uh, The bodies were found in a ravine, and one of the hikers suffered an injury that doctors compared to a car crash. So his chest was caved in, and his head was fractured. And uh, one was missing her tongue at the base, and her eyes were pulled out. All of the clothes found were strongly radioactive, and other than severe injuries, there were no signs of struggling or any other signs of life around the camper bodies, which means that so they also ruled out animals, because there were no animal tracks, and the like. The way her tongue was missing, and her eyes, and the way the injuries were set, animals wouldn't have done that, and or wouldn't have left the bodies, they would have eaten them, that kind of thing. Yeah.
1: They don't, they're not just like, Ooh, tongue and eyes, my dish. Yeah. <laughs> so... One theory
0: was that it was an avalanche. The main problem being that they were all experienced hikers and skiers, and there was no evidence of an avalanche when the search team arrived. Uh, There's also the fact that the footprints near the camp were not buried under snow. A second theory is paradoxical undressing. This is where the body is succumbing to hypothermia, but the victims feel as though they are burning, so they remove their clothes. But then why remove them and then go out into the snow? And why uh, would you then later pick them up off of other people's bodies and put them on again. I
1: understand the, like, taking them off and going into snow. Because if you feel like you're burning, you're like, I need something cold.
0: But they're experienced skiers. They know about this. So Mm -hmm. why would they do that? If you're burning and they know about it, you should put... They would put on more clothes, I would think.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is uh, crazy, but... Some
0: other theories were... UFOs, Yetis, indigenous people. And so this was in the Soviet Union. Mm. So there was also a theory that the Soviet Union had, like, a military base out there. And that's where the radioactiveness, like, came from. So it was kind of like our, like, base 13 thing. Mm -hmm. So they, like, killed them to keep it quiet. But it was also deemed that some of the injuries occurred could not have been from people. And there weren't extra sets of footprints. So it's kind of... Uh, to this day, they have no idea, like, how these people died, and they named it Date Love Pass after the leader of the group.
1: Which, I mean, it makes sense. I would feel like some of the injuries, like, could have just been from, like, a fight. Like, the guy with, like, a head injury, like, you could definitely just, like, crack a bottle over somebody's head and, like, for But there were,
0: it, but... they would have, uh... Like, there were no signs of a struggle or of fights between the people. Like, they, so the people, some of them had, like, videotaped parts of their trip. And so there was, like, a videotape the day before this had happened. Like, they presumed to have happened. uh, And they were all fine. Like, they were all okay with each other and having a good time. And then the next day, they were just dead. That's crazy. Granted, they did end up on Dead Mountain.
1: See, I feel like if I was experienced and I had gotten to somewhere, you know, like for the night and that blizzard had like already like came through or whatever, I would definitely probably try to backtrack because you're not always still going the right direction if you can't see. So, I mean, maybe they couldn't, but I feel like that would have been a great decision. Cool, cool. What's your second? So, I can never say her last name. But she's an Italian woman, Leonarda Sinesiuli. I'm assuming that's how you say it. Um, so she was born in, like, Montella, Italy. Um, as a young girl, she had, like, a harder life. And she had attempted suicide twice. Um, by the time, it was about 1917, I want to say she's older. I don't know the actual, like, age of some of these people. Um, but at 1917, she was married to a registry office clerk, um, Raphael Pensardi. And her parents didn't approve, and this is, like, Leo, which is what I'll call her through the rest of this, basically it's like, this is when my mother cursed us, because after, um, after she got her parents, like, disapproval, she moved to Raphael's native town in 1921. Um, in 1927, uh, Leo was sentenced to fraud and imprisonment for something she didn't do, so she was wrongly imprisoned for a while. Then when she was released they moved to Lacedonia where the house was destroyed by an earthquake in 1930. She had 17 pregnancies, 3 miscarried, uh, 10 died before the age of 10, and then there were only 4 left. So she was extremely like overprotective about her kids at this point. Um, so in 1939 her oldest slash like her favorite son was going to join the army and she was so overprotective that she had... She's like, I gotta do something to, like, save him. So they lived in, like, a suburb kind of area, and she Mm -hmm. went to fortune tellers a lot, and she herself was said to be a fortune teller, and women would come to her all the time and save her son. She used human sacrifices of three of the middle-aged women who were her neighbors who would come to her for advice. So the first um, of her victims, I guess you'd say, would be Faustina Setti. And she was someone who was, like, just trying to find a husband. So she would come, get her cards read, um, her, like, tarot cards read, all of this. And Leo said, you know, you will find a suitable partner in Pola, a town in Italy. And she was like, but don't tell anyone. Like, don't say anything to anyone. But I want you to write letters and postcards. That way, when you get there, you can let me know and I'll send them out for you. You don't have to worry about it. And when... Seti had come to, like, say bye. She had, basically, Leo had offered her a glass of drugged wine, and then once she passed out, dragged her into, like, a closet, killed her with an axe, chopped her up into nine parts, like, collected the blood, Um and <sighs> then she describes her, this is her own words, she says... I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the mixture into the pieces until the pieces dissolved into a thick, dark mush. Then I poured it into several buckets and emptied it into a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it, and mixed it in with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine. Kneading all the ingredients together, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to ladies who came to visit. Though Giuseppe, her oldest son, and I also ate them. So she had turned this lady into tea cakes. It was, Did Giuseppe know about this, though? Uh, yeah. Oh. He, he didn't help out. He was like, no, I'm still going to the army, but I appreciate this. So he's like, ooh, tea cakes. <clears throat> Human tea cakes. Because, I mean, who's going to ignore, like, the blood on in the closet, you know? Mom, what are you doing with a foot? Shh. Giuseppe, shut up.
0: Be quiet, Giuseppe. Mama's doing her work. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) So. Giuseppe's a good name, though. I like that name.
1: It really is a pretty name. It's spelled really weird. Nobody's ever going to be able to pronounce it probably correctly, but it sounds nice. So the second woman was someone who was struggling to, like, find a job that she liked, and her name was uh, Francesca Soavi. And... Once again, you know, Leah had claimed, oh, well, I found you a job at a school for girls in uh, Piacenza. And, you know, she was like, don't tell anybody. I just want you to write, like, letters and postcards. And basically did the exact same thing. Um, and I would say this was tea the biscuits. next year. <laughs> tea biscuits, yeah. And the thing is, is she had um, basically sold them. She made, like, $3,000 off of these, like, human-filled tea Tea cakes, yeah, <laughs> basically. So the third <laughs> victim was a singer, and she used to be in an opera, and she was Virginia. I can't say her last name. Can I, Casey Apple. No,
0: I can't say. It. I would say, actually, I would say Casey. Yeah, Casey Apple. Probably. Casey Apple.
1: We're gonna call her Virginia. She's the easiest first name. <laughs> so. She was a former, like, soprano singer, and she was, like, struggling to find work nowadays, and so Leo was like, Hey, I have this mysterious guy down in Florence, and, and you know, there's you're going to meet him, and it's going to be wonderful, and you're going to sing again. And, you know, just the same thing. This like, is sad because she's killing
0: women that are, like, going to her to try and, like, live out their dreams. Yeah. And she's like, you got this, and then murders them. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, she was, you know, don't tell anything. Don't tell anybody. And this was only, like, a yeah, few months. Yeah, don't tell your tree stump in the backyard. I'll know about it. I'll hear it. Um, this was only, like, a few months after the second person had died. Um, she melted her into soap. So and, she actually made soap out of her. Yeah she uh and i quote she said she ended up in the pot and like other and like the other two her flesh was fat and white when it had melted i added a bottle of cologne and after a long time on the boil i was able to make some i was make able to make some most acceptable creamy soap i gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances the cakes too were better that woman was really sweet so he she made her into cakes and soap interesting and i was just like why why are you like this Um, but... Because uh, Giuseppe. (laughs) Giuseppe. Because 17 pregnancies and... And Only four kids coming out of it. Yeah, favorite Giuseppe. Right. So, basically, the singer of Virginia, her sister-in-law, was like, "Eh, you won't just disappear like that. Like, what is this? Why are you like this? Well, apparently, she had planned on it, actually, but... Right. And the last time she was seen was entering into, like, Leo's house, so she, like, told the superintendent of the police, like, hey, I think there's some dark shit's going down. And she, uh, Leo didn't confess to, like, the murders when she was being investigated until they were like, well, Giuseppe obviously did it then, like, I don't know why we're thinking she's doing it. And she's like, nope, nope, I did it, don't touch my baby, boy. Don't do it. Uh, and that's the only reason she really confessed to the Murder because they were like, I don't want to, like, don't take my son, he's, he's innocent. He may have eaten the cakes and like used the soap, but he's innocent and have known about it. But yeah, <laughs> other than that, he's innocent. So in 1946, she was tried, and it says, um, at, at the trial, um, she like gripped the witness, like, stands rail with like delicate hands and just very calmly would correct. People, when they were like, oh, well, then she did this. And she's like, actually, I killed three, not two. Actually, that one was made in the soap and tea cakes. She would, like, correct them. And it said that (coughs) she calmly set the persecutor right on certain details. Her deep-set, dark eyes gleamed in a wild inner pride as she concluded, I gave the copper ladle, which I used to skim the fat off the kettles, to my country, which was so badly in need of metal during the last days of the war, so she had basically been like, "Well, I sold some of the things because, you know, for my country of Italy, even though she's like also to get rid of evidence, but whatever." <laughs> so I she- actually, I like this woman. <laughs> I like her. Right, and she was sentenced to thirty years in prisons and three years in a criminal asylum, but she did. <sighs> she died of cerebral apoc- apoplexy, and the women all. <clears throat> and the Women's Criminal asa- asylum.
0: <laughs> I can- asylum
1: in Pazuli on f- October 15th, 1970. Um, but if you go to the criminol- criminological museum in Rome, <laughs> you can find her <laughs> pot there where she cooked people in. Oh, okay. Good to know. So, yeah. because I'm a struggle. So, my next story... Patricia
0: Jones was one of six children, and she she married her high school sweetheart, Walter Jones. Despite his marriage and children, Walter had a wandering eye, and on April 28th, he met Sharon Kinney when she bought a Ford Thunderbird from his dealership. Kinney viewed him as a prospect for a second husband, but Jones was uninterested in leaving his wife. The relationship went okay, but was ruined when Kinney told Walter that she was pregnant and he was the father. Jones, instead of responding with what Kenny expected to be an agreement to divorce his wife, ended the affair. She went, I'm pregnant. And He went, okay, bye, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> On May 26th, Kenny contacted Patricia Jones and told her that Walter was having an affair with <clears throat> Kenny's sister. <clears throat> Kenny then met with Patricia that evening to discuss the matter further before dropping her off back at her house her house. Patricia never made it home, and Walter filed a missing person's report the next day. Suspicious, he called Kinney and asked if she had seen or spoken to his wife. Kinney allowed that she had seen Patricia that day to tell her about the affair. Walter went to see Kinney and then threatened her with physical harm if she didn't help him find his wife. (laughs)
1: I've cheated on her multiple times, but help me find her. Well, he
0: loved her, but and this woman was still pregnant, too. So she was still (laughs) pregnant, and he was, like, physically threatening to harm her.
1: He's like, I'll kill you. I'll kill you both. Try me. Her response was to connect,
0: was to connect, was to contact John Bouldiz. They found the body dressed in a black sweater and a yellow skirt. Patricia had been hit with four shots from a 22 caliber pistol. Damn. The gun that had shot her was never found, but Kenny was arrested soon after. So she was shot once uh, so she was shot like once in the stomach, twice in like
1: either shoulder, and then once in the head, and that's what killed her.
0: That's very executioner
1: style. Just kind of like for my baby, Patricia. For the blood of Christ, Patricia. You must be <laughs> I
0: don't know. Uh, Yeah, the gun that shot her was never found, but Kinney was arrested soon after. She was charged with two murders that of Patricia and that of Kinney's late husband. <laughs> because she was out on bail with two murders that of Patricia and that of Kinney's, or sorry, I'm like reading the line ahead. Uh, because she was out on bail at the time, she set out with Francis Puglis to Mexico and said she was married to him. When leaving their hotel to acquire medicine, she met Francisco <clears throat> Paredes. <throat> She went back to his hotel room, (laughs) shot and killed him, and attempted to murder a hotel staff member. Who knows? Because she's already going to be arrested. She's already, like. She's
1: like, well, hello, handsome. Too handsome.
0: She was brought back to the United States and charged with more murder cases. She was sentenced to 13 years. On December, December 7th, 1969, Kenny was not present for a routine 5 p.m. roll call, but her oh, absence shit. was not officially noted until she also failed to show up at a second roll call really that evening.
1: They're like meh. I'm Initial
0: okay. police speculation was that Kinney bribed guards to look the other way as she escaped, but after a check, found that she was that she probably slipped out as the guards were few and far between. It's thought that she escaped to Mexico and hasn't been seen since. <laughs> So
1: (laughs) she murdered four people and and escaped from prison. (laughs) And was never found. (laughs) Yes. That is great. Yup. I love that. Me too.
0: It turns out. Me too. Oh, God. (coughs) So also for my next one, I haven't fully read all of it, so this will be a surprise to both of us.
1: (laughs) This one's going to be a struggle because... This guy just had a life that was way too long for me to write down, so it's all screenshots. Okay. So, I'm doing Frederick Heinrich Karl Fritz Harman. We'll call him Fritz. But he's a German serial killer, and he's known as, like, the butcher of Hanover. For Germany! <clears throat> for the mother country! Wrong thing, but I don't care. For Deutschland! Deutschland! Um... He's also known as the Vampire of Hanover and the Wolfman, and he committed, like, sexual assault, murder, mutilation, and dismemberment. Wait, I know this. Yeah, of a minimum of 24 boys and young men between 1918 and 1924 and Hanover, Germany. Let it
0: be known I know this story. (sighs)
1: Sad face. (laughs) Basically, I'm gonna sum up his life because it's way too long. I took way too many screenshots of this. Not worth it so he's the sixth and youngest child of his family he was born in 1879 he was a quiet kid and he was super feminine he would rather play with his sister's dolls wear their dresses cook um all of that he kind of grew up to be like kind of i want to say like captain captain america like he he got kind of bulky as he grew up um his dad was very like promiscuous and abusive, and his mom was, like, a very sweet lady. But, you know, even though, like, he slept around, his father contracted syphilis, like, seven times. <laughs> and then his mom, like, never left until she died in, like, 1901. But, you know, he was one of those kids that was so, like, coddled by his family that he was tended to daydream and not really do his work. And um, so he eventually... Um, he was an employ. He had employment as an apprentice uh, locksmith. Then he eventually, uh, eventually, at the age of like fifteen, was in a military academy of his own, you know, design. Um, he, I want to say, he was he was a really good like soldier. Although he tended to like pass out a lot, and they said it was something kind of like the equivalent of epilepsy. So he discharged himself and. <coughs> worked at his father's cigar factory so he at the age of 16 he would lure um younger boys down into like secluded areas kind of like cellars and he would just like sexually abuse them so he if i can read this right so they placed him in like a mental institution and he had a psychiatric evaluation that said he was incurably deranged um Nah. So he was basically su- yeah. <laughs> he, he was supposed to be in a mental institution like indefinitely for the rest of his life. But like seven months later he escaped. with the help of his mom, he escaped. And so they fled to Zurich, Switzerland and he lived there for like a year and a half working on a shipyard. and then he was like engaged to a woman, she became pregnant. And then in October of 1900, which is a year before his mom died, he had to serve, like, compulsory, like, military service. Oh. So even though he had, like, had already been in, like, the military, like, academy, discharged himself. Wait, what year is this? This is 1900. Oh. This is also in Germany, So. So, he actually was a really great soldier and, like, a great marksman, and he says that those years were, like, the best years of his life. (laughs) Go for you, I guess. Right? Um, So, he collapsed while on exercise with his battalion October 1901. I want to say his mom's already died by then. Um, He began to suffer dizzy spells and was subsequently hospitalized for over four months. He was deemed unsuitable for military service and work and was dismissed uh, in July of 1902, so he was- Wait, sorry, do do the people he's with know he's a murderer? Nope. Okay. Nope, nope. Well, he wasn't a murderer at that point. He had just sexually abused people, and then he was clinically insane. Yeah, I guess. Do they know Mm -hmm. he's clinically insane? I guess not. Because Even though he escaped,
0: I I don't know that from, I would
1: uh, want to be, you know, like in the military with somebody like A deranged that. person who was indefinitely supposed to be in a mental institution, but you know, um, but he was described as being probable for dementia praecox, praecox sure, <laughs> <Pre-mintus>. <laughs> Um, but he was awarded a monthly military pension of 21 gold marks. Um, Ooh, so that's he, not bad. Yeah. So he went to, like, live with his fiance and work in his small business. Um, And then he tried to, like, file a maintenance lawsuit against his father since he was unable to work due to the alignments noted by the military. Um, But basically the charges were dropped because his father is, like, smarter than him. Okay. (laughs) And then um, they had, like, a violent fight. And basically there were verbal death threats and blackmails, Justification to have a son return to a mental institution. Um, But they were... Dropped due to, you know, lack of corroborating evidence. Even though he was supposed to indefinitely be in a mental institution, people. (laughs) Just look at his records. He escaped. He wasn't let go. So, he was ordered to undertake a psychiatric examination in May of 1903. But they said that he was, although morally inferior, he was not mentally unstable. He just didn't really give a shit about people. (laughs) That's what Mm -hmm. they found out. so. So, he was just a psychopath. Basically. Um, so he, they, him and his wife opened a fishmongery in her name, um, and he attempted to work as, like, an Who insurance... Who decided to marry him? I think her name's, like, Ir- Irma, something like that, Irma. Like, why? I don't know. She's, like, still with his kid at this point. Like, he, she's still pregnant. Um, but he attempted to work as, like, an insurance salesman, but he was classified as disabled and unable to work by the 10th Army in 1904. So, at this point, she's had the kid at some point. As a result, his uh, military pension was slightly increased the same year his fiancé, pregnant with another child of his, was like, I don't really want to marry you. I'm calling off the engagement. But I am having your second kid. (laughs) Yeah, and though, um, and he was like, oh, well, you're sleeping with a student of yours, because I guess she was a teacher, but though the fishmongery was, like, in her name, so she was like, get off my property, bitch. Like, I don't want you anymore. Because he wasn't allowed to be there, because nothing was in his name. So, (coughs) for the next, like, ten years of his life, he was a petty thief and a burglar and, like, a con artist. He was, like, I'm going (laughs) to steal from people. Kick me off your shit, I'll steal other people's shit. Basically. So, he did obtain, like, legitimate employment, but he would, like, steal from his, like, employers and the customers. And so, therefore, he was terminated often. Uh, so he served, uh, beginning in 1905, he served several short-term prison sentences for the offenses such as larceny, embezzlement, and assault. Um, he had claimed that he was acquainted with a female employee while working as an invoice clerk, and they would rob like several tombstones and graves between like 1905 and 1913, although he was never charged for these things. Oh, okay. So he did it and just was never charged for it. So he spent the majority of the years between 1905 and 1912 in jail. So in 1913, he was arrested for burglary. He, they found a bunch of stolen shit, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm trying to look at what I want to say. So once, like, as a result of, like, World War One, he was struck by poverty because he had, like, tried to go to a different place in Germany um, for work, and so he basically went back into uh, Hanover Central Station, purchased stolen property, all of that, and he basically reverted to a criminal life he had lived before his 1913th arrest, and then he became a police informant, although he was, like... Back then in Germany, being a homosexual was, like, you were able to be arrested for that, as well as he was a known criminal, but he, like, the police didn't arrest him because he, like, got information by, like, sleeping around and, like, being involved with other criminals. Oh, okay. So he would just, like, rat people out, and they were like, alright, our little gay informant, whatever, I'm supposed to arrest you either way, but... That works. He has a very interesting life. He really does. Um, so, between 1918 and 1924... He's committed 24 murders, at least he's expected of a murder of a minimum of 27. Um, they all ranged between, like, the ages of 10 and 22, although, like, they would be given, like, food and drink, like, all of his victims were, like, invited back to his house, given food and drink, and then he would, like, strangle them, and then, like, bite off their Adam's apple. Interesting. And was like, this is my love bite. That's what he called it. He's like, that's my love bite. That's disturbing. he's like, you got a nasty-ass love bite, dude. So, he would then, like, cut them up into pieces and throw them in the river for the fishies to eat. They were like, oh, oh, this is going so well. Oh, my Adam's apple's
0: gone!
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, he would also, like, sell the meat on, like, the black market. And was like, it's minced meat, guys. It's mystery meat. Eat it. Eat it. <laughs> <laughs> it's mystery meat. Go ahead.
0: Eat. So,
1: yeah, he basically, like, that's what he would do. And so... He would, um, there was no physical evidence that ever, like, confirmed the theories that he would eat the meat, but, like, it was definitely known that he, like, sold it on the black market, and I was like, here, if the fish don't eat it, you can. (laughs) It was kind of great, because he was an active trader in, like, contraband meat, so, like, it was boneless, diced, and sold as, like, a mint, so nobody ever really knew. So, (laughs) there's a bunch of, like, his first known whatever- but basically, it's just a bunch of like people that he was just like, here. Let me like seduce you into my house, and then because he's crazy. So I don't think like going into the details of everybody, but yeah, he's crazy. He's an insane guy. Okay. Yeah, First of
0: all, I saw the cover on your phone, like the thing, yeah. and I love it because it's Ivor. Oh my god. And then okay. I have- Ivor's my fucking favorite anyways <laughs> well
1: I'm rewatching Vikings so
0: I haven't even seen all of it it's too good I just like can't
1: well what season are you on so um, I know this is just typical conversation but I don't even know well because <laughs> my, my mom's long. basically finished it and I, my mom's like, I have not it gotten I've
0: not gotten to a season where Ivor like he's been born but he's not like an adult
1: oh so you're you're in season three I want to say because he's an adult in season four Okay, anyways. Well, anyway, we can watch it at some point if you want to hang out. Okay. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) Even though I showed it to you. (laughs) Yeah, now we're just like, rewatch. re Uh, Dennis
0: Rader. So, he was known as the BTK killer. KKK killer? Just kidding. So, his middle name's Lynn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dennis was born on March 9th, 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and grew up in Wichita. The oldest of four sons, he enjoyed a seemingly normal childhood, but he actually, during his childhood, would hang stray animals. I told you, lynching, lynn, <laughs> KKK, I'm BTK. So he dropped out of college and joined the U.S. Air Force in the mid-1960s. After returning to Wichita, he married his wife, Paula, in 1971 and, and worked for an outdoor supply company for about a year. In 1974, he began he began a lengthy began. stint as an employee of ADT Security Services. He began. He began.
1: Gang
0: gang. On January 15th, 1974, uh, he strangled to death four members of the Otero family in their Wichita <laughs> home. It's like it's literally out of nowhere. Sure, he killed animals as a kid, but now all of a sudden he just like Strangle strangled the four people. I'm like, oh. So he strangled the parents, Joseph and Julie, and two of their children, Josephine and Joseph Jr.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> the family's messed up. Kill them all. So uh. it's
0: Joseph, Josephine, and Joseph Jr., and then Julie. <laughs> Julie! Uh, before leaving with <laughs> a Josefa. watch and a radio, strangulation and souvenir taking would become part of his uh, modest operan- operandi? A pattern of behavior. He also left semen at the scene and later said that he'd sexual pleasure from killing. The Otero's 15-year-old son, Charlie, the only outsider,
1: came home later that
0: day and discovered the bodies.
1: That's why he wasn't <laughs> killed. His name is Charlie. It's the only one.
0: God. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Dennis struck again a few months later on April 4th, 1974. He waited in the apartment of a young woman named Catherine Bright before stabbing and strangling her when she returned home. He also twice shot her brother, Kevin, though he survived. Kevin! Kevin later described him as an average-sized guy, bushy mustache, psychotic eyes, according to the Time Magazine article. So the thing I don't understand is that, like, there's literally, like, there's no reason for this. Like, he had a good childhood. He just did weird things.
1: (laughs) What really happened? In October
0: 1974, he placed a letter in a public library book in which he took responsibility for killing the Oteros. The letter ended up with a local newspaper, and the poorly written note gave authorities some idea of who they were dealing with. Uh, Dennis wrote, It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang-up. He warned that he would strike again, noting the code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. B-T-K. The initials stuck in the murderer came to be known by variations of the BTK killer, moniker, or simply BTK. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dennis's next known crimes occurred in 1977. In March of that year, he tied up and strangled Shirley Vian after locking her children in the bathroom. (laughs) In December, he strangled Nancy Fox in her home and then called the police to report the homicide. Shortly afterward, in January 1978... Rader sent a poem to a local newspaper about the Vianne killing. Mm -hmm. Several weeks later, he sent a letter to a local television station stating that he was responsible for killing Vianne, Fox, and another unknown victim. (laughs) He also made allusions to several other notorious killers, including Ted Bundy and David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam. I now call that dude because I don't know what this is and I want to learn about it. (laughs) Despite his cat and mouse game with authorities, Raider was able to keep the lid on his secret murderous life. Reportedly an attentive husband, he and his wife had a son in 1975 and a daughter in 1978. The next year, Raider graduated from Wichita State University with a degree in administration of justice. Still, he continued to taunt authorities and appeared to be poised to strike again. In April 1979, he waited in an elderly woman's home, but left before she returned. He sent her a letter to let her know that BTK had been there. In an effort to catch him, the authorities released the 1977 recording of his phone call to police, hoping that someone might recognize the voice. After several years without a known crime, he killed his neighbor, Marine Hedge, on April 27, 1985. Her body was found days later on the side of the road. The following year, he killed Vicki... Wegerly in her home, his final known victim, Dolores Davis, was taken from her home on January 19, 1991. He's got issues. Yes.
1: Like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And nobody's found him. He's like, hey, love letters. Hey, I'm Poems. Hey, I'm going to call you. It's like a clingy girlfriend.
0: He just won't (laughs) shut up and do it. Over the next several years, BTK dropped off the map as Dennis focused on work and family life. He had left ADT in the late 1980s and started working for the Wichita suburb of Park City as a compliance supervisor in 1991. In his new position, Dennis was known to be a stickler for the rules. He measured the height of people's lawns and chased stray animals while toting a tranquilizer gun. According to reports, Rader took pleasure in exerting his limited authority over his neighbors and other members of the community. He was also a Boy Scout troop leader and president of his church council. With many news stories marking the 30th anniversary of the Otero murders, BTK resurfaced in 2004. I was four. Raider sent local media outlets and author authorities several letters filled with items released, or sorry, related to his crimes, including pictures, a word puzzle, and an outline for the BTK story. He also left packages with clues, including a computer disk that ultimately led authorities to Raider's church. Investigators also noticed his white van on security tapes of some of the package drop-off areas and cemented their case by obtaining a DNA sample from Dennis's daughter. Dennis was arrested on February 25, 2005, and later charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. His neighbors and fellow church members were stunned by the news, unable to believe that the man they knew was the serial killer that had haunted the area for so long. Yeah. Dennis pleaded guilty to all the charges on June 27, 2005. As part of his plea, he gave the horrifying details of his crimes in court. Many observers noticed that he described the gruesome events without any sign of remorse or emotion. Because he committed his crimes before the state's 1994 reinstatement of the death penalty, Raider was sent to El Dorado Correctional Facility to serve his 10 life sentences. God,
1: I mean, I get it, but Jesus. done. That's And that's a picture of Dennis. He looks like every pastor I've ever met at a church. (laughs) Like, (laughs) all of the older pastors that are, like, really get along with kids, it's exactly what they look like. But, like, I don't get it. Serial killers really, like, I don't understand. Because they're either really involved with the community or they're, like, shutouts out in the woods with, like, a shack. Well, the smart ones
0: are the ones that are very involved in the community. That's why nobody (laughs) (laughs) believes that it's
1: them. That's why I don't trust anyone, guys. If they're too involved, if they are in more than two activities in the community, they are a serial killer. Wow, like more than 50 students at our school are serial killers. I could see that. (laughs) Because they're all crazy. All crazy as (laughs) shit. Whatever. Whatever, ever. Okay, so
0: I don't know. Are we going to start recording more often again? I mean, since I'm
1: out of school,
0: yeah. Okay. Uh, Around the seventeenth and eighteenth of January, we aren't going to be because I'm going to be having my surgery uh, for my foot, and so I'm probably going to be out for a little bit. So, or maybe we will do more because I won't be in school (laughs) and you'll be coming over, I guess. Yeah,
1: because I took what I took the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth, and twentieth off.
0: So maybe there will be more <laughs> those days. Maybe we'll do a movie mm-hmm. edition episode. Yeah,
1: we can do movies, and we can just watch Vikings and drink wine, something. <laughs>
0: okay, uh, so that's the end of Justifiable. I don't
1: remember what episode this is, but woo! I think it's the eighth or ninth. <laughs> Bye. Bye!